I pray that you teach me to stand with my brothers and sisters. Teach me to stand with my brothers and sisters. It is not like this man and his family have not stood with his brothers and sisters before, certainly. It's not like we haven't stood together as a community of believers before, certainly. But now we do so with a purpose. And so we're going to take a look at kind of what that purpose could look like today through Nehemiah and what God had for us. So I want to ask you this question. As we, as we start talking about the series of building God's kingdom, whatever application, how can the church battle an enemy that's already at the door? How does the church battle an enemy that's already at the door? That's the thought I want you to think about today because Tom led into it beautifully. How can the church battle an enemy already at the door? Let's talk about where we've been first to set the stage about where we're going to go. Anytime you read the Bible, you want to ask, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? And what's the context? Well, we're going to unpack what God's word says. We're going to see what it means. And we're going to be challenged on how it applies. And we're going to focus on the context to illuminate God's single story, his one story of truth. This is the fourth week of our series. We've seen a God apportioned time to one man given that stirred his heart for his people, not because of his own needs, but because of what God cares about. This led him to pray, to consider, and then to act, to restore God's people to bring him glory. Well, I said we're talking about God's story, but what is that story? If you remember, on the tables a couple weeks ago, we put out this handout. It's over at the table at the front. If you need this handout, too, it's a flow chart. It's the Old Testament story. It's God's Old Testament story. And instead of going through this, and I actually debated as Doug and I were talking, and I could probably do this in three minutes if I just talk really fast like the old micro machine guy. Instead of doing that, I'm going to talk about these stages. And I want you to understand why this matters. Because God has always been, because God always is, and because God always will be. There only ever was one story, right? There's no plan B. In the garden was not a let's pivot and figure out what to do next moment. It was God's plan. Think of these stages here. You had the creation stage in Genesis, the patriarch stage in Job and Genesis, some more Exodus, then the conquest. And after the conquest, the United Kingdom's stage. And that brings us into the history books of Chronicles, of Kings. We have the wisdom literature of Psalms and Proverbs and some of the glorifying literature of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Then you have the kingdom splitting when Solomon dies in 931. And the chaotic kingdom comes forth. So the Old Testament shows us what happens when the kingdom breaks and people then divided lead themselves to their own glory. And we know how that worked out. Judges, if you remember, tells us that the people did what was right in their own eyes in Judges 17 and Judges 21. In fact, the book of Judges ends with, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And with finality, that book ends. And it should have some finality in our hearts as well. So we looked at what happened. The divided kingdom leads to a divided heart and divided people that allows God's plan to keep moving in action and allow the captivity phase to happen. And for those of you that were with us last year, we talked about Daniel, we talked about Revelation. There's prophecy in Ezekiel that talks about that as well. And lastly is the return. And the return stage in the Bible encompasses Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, with this being the last phase, and with 
Nehemiah being the last book of the Bible, or the Old Testament, I'm sorry. And so that leads us into a silent period then of 400 years where God's people are dealing with the return and dealing with how do they move forward and rebuild. And then, of course, John the Baptist comes on scene. And we know from the Old, from the Old Testament where the New Testament's going to go. So it's important that you understand that this book was written around Nehemiah, 440 B.C., and that you can look at this pathway on the flow chart. You can look at it as stages of development. You can look at it as, as covenants. You can look at it all different ways. But what you don't have the freedom to do, and God has not given us the freedom to do, is have our own story about what God's story says. Would you agree? That's a big deal. In fact, when people attack the Christian faith, you know what two areas they attack? They attack the reliability of the Bible. I took this off the back table here. You sh if you have not seen this, you sh everybody should have this. I have this up at my office, and it generates a lot of conversation among police officers, let me tell you. It's the reliability of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible, okay? The second thing they'll attack is who is Jesus. Was he a good guy? Was he a prophet? Was he a teacher? Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, amen? And so when you allow people to start attacking those two areas, the fabric of God's story just erodes. It just erodes. Now with that as a backdrop, you got to think about this. In Nehemiah, that fabric was being torn up because God's people, in, in apathy maybe, in confusion, maybe in some fear, just didn't know what to do with what they had. One man, Nehemiah, was impelled by God's spirit to care about God's glory as seen through his people in Jerusalem. If you remember, week one was Nehemiah was moved by the need to see God glorified. Then week two, Nehemiah arrived on the scene and he rallied the troops, right? Week three, Nehemiah creates the environment so that all people, as Pastor Doug showed, in community, join together to do the work. And today, today, this is the point of it all. This is that key chapter in the entire story of Nehemiah that's going to point to the why. We should be asking that question of ourselves. When we do something, what's the why? Well, the community of God links arms. And as my brother Brian Tootin said, it must have been a couple years ago now, we create a shield wall and we link arms. And when you fight that way, we are unbeatable. And when you let God do the work, he is king. So now that we have an, uh, a history of what's going on, let's go back to that thought. How can the church battle an enemy already at our door? And as we remember where we've been and we know where we are, we can have confident assurance of where we're going to go. That's truth. Let's talk about the path of the passage today. There will be three main areas I'm going to talk through, broken up into these three sections. Verses 1 through 6, the idea of overcoming ridicule. Verses 7 and 9, outsmarting the threat of attack. And verses 10 through 23, overpowering discouragement. So as you can see, I hope, I've used very strong language that warriors would use and that people that are on mission that want to do battle against the enemy would use because that's really what this is about. And don't kid yourself. This isn't just a Nehemiah thing. And it's certainly not just a thing for people that are in physical combat. This is an everyday battle for your hearts and minds. And what are we going to do about it? So open your Bibles to Nehemiah 4 and read along with me as I read Verses 1 through 6. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. 
he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you, for they've demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So in this idea of overcoming ridicule, let's take a look at this. I'm going to break down this entire chapter into a bunch of different phases. This is why I led you with the phases before. So phase one, verses one through three, strengthen yourself in your position. This is phase one, strengthen yourself in your position. Now look at the verses. Now it came about that when Sambalat heard we were building the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria. What are they doing? Can they restore it? And he's just feeding and fanning the flames. So this is the recounting of Nehemiah on the news that he heard. If you remember, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, people were coming and going, and they knew what the Jews were doing. They knew what was going on. And so he knew the information that was coming forward. And so when you read Nehemiah, if you read it as a first-person narrative, you're, you're not going to understand that. You can't read this, the first six verses as one person's thought. He is recounting about what's going on that he's hearing about. And he's using that as the fire to fuel the action that God's going to take. But here's the thing. Sambalat, Tobiah, and we will see in other places, more people were so brazen in their hatred of the Jews. They were just incensed. And Luke and I are reading this morning, we were reading about this. We'll talk about it. They just, they wanted to kill them. But why? Why were they so upset? Well, let's go back to chapter 2 for a second. So if you're in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 10, you want to make a note? Let me read this to you. Chapter 2, verse 10 in Nehemiah reads, And when Sembalat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So where does that hatred start? It starts right there. And why? So the walls of Jerusalem were in disrepair. They're broken down. In Nehemiah 1, 3, Nehemiah hears from the remnant that they were in great distress and reproach. The Jews were not self-sufficient as a people group here. They weren't. And Nehemiah knew that. And so here's the issue. When the people are, self, are not self-sufficient, they rely upon somebody else or some other group to help them. So they relied upon the commerce and provision of the ruling class, the commerce class. And who were those people? It was Sambalat. It was Tobiah. It was all the wealthy people in the land. So the Jews were getting all their provision and support from these people. Now, Think of this. If you know your history, what happens when a people becomes empowered and starts to move away from the group that's protecting them or providing provision? Is it always a happy go? We look around and we see people, we look in, in, in um, the former Soviet Republic and look at all the satellite nations that came out of that. And look at some of the problems that came out of that because they wanted to retain control. And so the hatred really stems from this idea that now... They could, they could give a, 
a rip about the Jews, what they care about. They're losing their provision. They're losing their commerce. They're losing their influence on the way that that people group is going to generationally multiply. Does that make sense? If I keep teaching my kids to live in fear, for example, they will be raised as weak-willed men to live in fear. They will teach their kids to be weak-willed men and or women to live in fear. And so when the people are being told over and over again, no, 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 it's okay, trust us, trust us, trust us, trust us, and they don't stand up on their own, they live in fear. This is what caused all the hatred. This is what made them furious. They knew they were losing control. They knew they were losing revenue, and they went on the attack. Remember, phase one, strengthen yourself in your position. This is what was happening here on both sides. Any attack plan starts here. They used attacks on the character of the Jews to dismay them and demoralize. You, you heard it read. The builders were demoralized by this. To downplay any threat that the Jews could have against them, and this was their rally cry to act. Remember, the same thing goes on in the world system today, doesn't it? It's run of the schemes of the devil, and it's blatantly attacking the church as a whole on all sides. The enemies are dismantling the historical foundations of our country. Let's keep it with our country for a second. Dismantling the history of our country to rewrite a different history that does not put forth the glory of God in the church. It doesn't. It puts forth the glory of man. They're erasing God-given distinction of gender, outright defying the laws by openly persecuting houses of worship, sales of Bible, and reclassifying evangelism into hate speech. This is today. This is real. This is the kind of stuff that was going on back then. This is the stuff that we know will continue to happen until the Lord comes back. Amen? And so we can't wait for that. So this is all in that phase one plan to muster support for their cause. And I can prove that this is something that the whole story of the Bible talks about. If you look at Revelation, chapter 16, verse 16. You don't have to go there now and make a note of it. But in the battle, the battle of Armageddon, the dragon and the beast gathered all their forces on the plain to fight against the people of God and they got crushed. That's the end result. So Nehemiah is going to build upon this encouragement he gets by knowing he's doing God's work. So let's get back to the text. Verses 4 through 6 lead us into phase 2. Assure your foundation to both attack and defend. Assure your foundation to attack and defend. Here are the verses. Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they've demoralized the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. I read it differently the second time because when you hear Nehemiah's focus, it changes the meaning. He is assuring his foundation to attack and defend. Nehemiah got word of what was said. We covered that. And instead of calling on all the assembled people of God, like it was in chapter 3, to confront the enemy, Nehemiah leads by example and demonstrate how confidence really is gained and reminds people the truth of God. And by crying out to God, he knows God will strengthen and secure his people. And let's be honest, there's no mention of Jesus right there, but it's not because Jesus wasn't in their midst. There's a New Testament example I want to draw you to that has the same thought. Peter, 
is in a defense as to why he healed someone in authority in Acts 3. This is Peter's second sermon. And make a note of this. In, in Acts 3.26, Peter says, For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Peter was not saying, I will take my sword, the same sword that I cut the priest's ear off, and I'll go fight for my God. No, no, no. Peter said, God is going to take care of it. He says, he was sent, Jesus, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He's showing that it was always God's plan to send Jesus to confront sin, offer redemption, and lead the way to revival. It's where Nehemiah was putting his faith in, on a God that can do that. The second point. So the first point, remember, we talked about preparing ourselves, and the second point, outsmarting the threat of attack. Verses 7 through 9. This will be a, a shorter point. Phase 3. First contact with the enemy. And anybody is military or police understands that no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? So that's why we call it first contact with the enemy. Verse 7 reads, when the Symbolic, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to close. They were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Outsmarting the threat of attack. When the attack was launched, God's people were prepared the right way. He ends verse 9. He says, we prayed to our God. It was the second cry in as many verses that Nehemiah only wanted to do what God wanted for him to do. He sought wisdom and encouragement from the king. He started the book of Nehemiah by doing that. He was impelled in his spirit, distressed in his soul, saw the people, saw the city, and saw God's glory robbed and not magnified. And he sat on it for four months and he prayed, God, when is the time? God, when is the time? And if you remember in chapter 1, the king says, My servant, why is your heart so downcast? Why is your face troubled? And then he knew it was time, right? It's a key point. Nehemiah prayed and then acted. He prayed and then acted. And God gave the solution and safety when needed. No first plan survives contact with the enemy. My brother Scott McAllister last week said something that was pretty cool. Scotty does this all the time, and I wrote down what Scott said, and I want to tell it to you. No plan survives first contact with the enemy, and Scott McAllister says, because God always has a counter move. Do you remember that? God always has a counter move. He wasn't surprised. He didn't just happen to put the people where they were. He didn't just happen to stack the enemy against the Jews and the people. God always has a counter move. So here's some things to think about, right? So how do we battle the enemy already at our door as a church? Saying that I'll pray for you should be followed by what? I'll pray for you right now, right? We become a church of people that walk around saying, I'm just going to pray for you right now. And I love it. I love it. I was in a situation, I walked back and I was able to see a brother who expressed something and I said, we're going to pray right now. And we got to pray together right now. When Tom was giving his gospel moment, 
we were praying and Scott walked over and we let's pray right now. As a church, where is your heart? Do you pray and then act? Do you recognize that your spiritual gift should be followed by where can I serve? Kim Rosenbach, if you remember, came up and she had labored with the idea of her spiritual gift. Everybody is given some measure of the spiritual gifts, the Bible says. Not me, the Bible says it. So if you're sitting here today and you wonder, yeah, but Jeff, that's just not for me. I can't get up in front of people and talk. I can't have, as John Moore said, put vittles out on the table, right? I can't, I can't, I can't. But what can you do? Find what you can do and do it. Find where God has, has trained you and empowered you and then go serve there. And hearing a brother or sister in distress should be followed by, I'll be right there. When Mo called me, some of you on the prayer list, when his wife was taken to the ER, he didn't know if she had a heart attack or what. Our, our common joke, we say, is when someone calls, I just ask who's driving. And we just go. I'll be right there. What do you need? I'll make time for you. As a church, have we allowed ourselves the bandwidth to make time for people? My neighbor, and again, not in my notes, right? My neighbor yesterday says, hey, he's out fixing his roof. What are you doing tomorrow for the big game? I looked at him and I went, and I actually said, what big game? <laughs> it, well, look, to be fair, I, I grew up where my dad at 8 a.m. woke us up on the list of four boys. All of us were multi-sport athletes. Um, 8 a.m. on Sunday, dad said, get up, it's pregame. And he'd get my, my mom would, of course, be up. She'd already be in the kitchen. She's Italian, my dad's Irish, so my mom wore, uh, you know, like the apron and had the wooden spoon all day. And she would just crank out food all day for us. And we would have all these, we'd have, you know, the two games, take a break. My dad say, do your chores, but you better be back here by four, pregame. And we would watch the, the Sunday night game together. And then it was, what you think about the game? And then my dad would fall asleep because he got up early. And I'd think to myself, I didn't do that homework I was supposed to do again. And at 9 o'clock at night till about 9.05, I worked on my school. But that's how we grew up, believing that the idol in our hearts needed to be pushing into sports all day long, so I can tell you all about the big game. Then, but God's plan for my family was something different. And so when he, when he makes that, that comment to me, I just thought to myself, are we willing to move? I said, well, I'm going to go tell people about Jesus at church tomorrow. You should come, it'd be cool. And then I'll come over to your house and we'll have hot dogs. And he just looked at me like, but the game's tomorrow. <laughs> right, right. We're in a game right now, but to God, it's no game. It is no game. And for people watching online, it is not a game. It is real. We are in a battle day by day, and to the point that we give our heart to things of the world will be less of our heart that we give to the God who gave it to us in the first place. We can find victory together. And as Nehemiah, we get back into the text here in a minute, Nehemiah had rallied his people in chapter 3 for what is going to be this battle in chapter 4. So our third point, and it will take up the, mo the rest of our time here, overpowering discouragement. So we set a foundation. We're looking at contact the enemy. This phase four is improvised. Improvised. I'm going to read verses 10 through 16. So follow along. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish. And we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, 
and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When the enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. That's pretty cool. I almost just want to stop there and just talk all about that. And you know what? We are going to talk about that. So that's what we're going to do. When the enemies heard this, let's, let's walk backwards from this, right? Let's walk backwards from 16 back, okay? So he has his guard set up, and now people are ready to go. It says, while the work's going on, half the servants were ready to fight, on alert. The other half were building. Walking back, the enemies had heard about this. They weren't going to do anything, and that allowed them the freedom to build. And here's the thing. In verse 14, Nehemiah, even with all the encouragement, the people were still afraid because they knew it was coming, right? Nehemiah said, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to them. He said, don't be afraid. Remember, the Lord is great and awesome. Listen to this. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Let me ask you this question. Anybody here in the military? Anybody here ever served in the military? Okay. And I thank you. When you went into the military, did they tell you, no problem, you can hang out at your house, and when you're needed, we'll call you? That's not what happens, right? Even the police department, you know what they tell us? They they don't say, I want you to read this book and watch this video series at home, and then when you're ready, then you can come and be a police officer. No, you go to an academy, and it's lengthy. And you spend time with these people that you're going to learn with. In the military, when you are, <clears throat> when you're deployed, they don't deploy you to your park. They deploy you someplace else other than your house. It becomes hard to get people together unless you have that one unifying banner. Think about what Nehemiah did. It's important to remember this. Otherwise, the structure of what's going to happen next won't make a lot of sense. Nehemiah would look at families like the Griffins the Troyers, the Hollies, the Dawkuses, the Johnsons, and would say, where you live, this is your section of the wall to repair. Think about that. Don't you agree that you'd have a little more buy-in in trying to fix your own backyard? And there's a lot of layers on that, right? Fixing up your own house is probably a better way to go. You're going to get the buy-in of the people to do the work you're asking them to do, especially when I know that I can get up in the morning, have three or four cups of coffee, and then go to work on building my wall in front of me. What Nehemiah did is simply said, the families in place rise up, I'm going to help you, I'm going to give servants to you, the servants of the house, half of you guard, and the other half in your family area work. You understand, the people had no problem with that, right? To a lesser degree, if you ask me to go over to someone's house, I'll use the Johnsons, right? If Brian Johnson called me and said, hey, Jeff, 
I'm, I'm not using Brian's voice, I promise. Hey, Jeff. Dude. You should come help me fix something in my house. I'd be like, yeah, no problem, bro. I'm coming over. And the next day he says, hey, Jeff, I need you to come feed cows and, and do farm stuff. I, 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 there, there'd be a lot of farm stuff going on. I'd say, yeah, okay, I'll, just, I'll be right over there. And then the third day in a row he said, hey, Jeff, help me go take eggs from chickens or more farm things. At this point I'm going to say, have other things to do probably I mean I love you but it's probably not going to happen okay even and, and Brian is one of my best friends and even with the love I have for that family it still becomes hard as you can imagine over and over and over to be deployed to someone else's backyard to do work that you know has value you know has value that's why he put them right where they were look you want to have value you want to have value in your house now you're going to work now you wake up energized, recognizing that the work you're doing benefits you and it's going to help the kingdom. And together, they are stronger. Nehemiah knew the condition of his flock. He knew they were frustrated. He knew they were tired. He knew that they were weary of what's coming for this conflict. He also knew that that discouragement, that self-effacing, oh, I can't do it, that fear was making them pawns of the enemy. He knew it. He knew that was going on right there. That's self-talk. As Pastor Doug says, we talk to ourselves a lot more often than anyone else ever talks to us. He knew that horrible self-talk was eroding their will to stand up for not, not just their home, right, but for God. As God had called them to rebuild this wall under the leadership of Nehemiah. The enemy knows also when people are struggling, and that's when you press the attack talk about this a lot in tactics when you look at military police when you are outnumbered and being outflanked by a larger force and an enemy is presenting more firepower um, no options you know what we're, we're told to do attack attack you find that weak spot and like all right there's three of us there's a hundred of them let's attack they will not see it coming Right, the enemy is waiting for that time to do that in your heart. They had ramped up their intensity. Remember, they were discouraged. They were upset by what they heard in chapter 2. In chapter 3, if you remember, they were told, that, get out of here, you have no part in Jerusalem. But here in chapter 4, they're saying, let's get up and let's kill them. So I was telling Luke, how does somebody get so upset by something they're not a part of? They want to kill them. I don't want to stop the work. I want to kill you and erase any chance ever again that you would have to dare rise up against us. It's pretty harsh. And Israel had been there before. And if you remember your history, as we talked about in our flow chart, it talks about how self-discouraged and how self-deceived the people of God had been. They rebelled against God's providence numerous times. In fact, the cycle saga, as we see in Judges, is, is that sin... In that, in that servitude, and then that crying out for salvation. But think about what happened in Exodus 14, 10 through 13. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read this to you. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They became very frightened. So the sons of the Lord cried out. And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you've seen here today, you will never see them again forever. Amen? You remember what happened, right? God opened the Red Sea. God closed the Red Sea. They never saw them again. And just as a side note, should you be the archaeological mindset? Like, I love the history that you can find in the archaeology of the Old Testament. They were finding chariots at the bottom of the Red Sea and spears, and that's fact. So we trust that what God has done, he promised, is doing, and will do. We, we, we trust that. Nehemiah was a leader. He acted like one. So from improvising a solution, now we're going to move to phase five, adapt. Verses 17 through 21. Follow along with me. <clears throat> those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we're separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until stars appeared. The key to this whole chapter, verse 20. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. God will fight for us. So much to unpack there. For the sake of time, I'll just cover a couple things quickly, okay? Nehemiah. Where was the trumpeter, right? Didn't say that every family had a trumpeter. So I point out, the trumpeter was by Nehemiah's side. And yet Nehemiah says, at whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, God will fight for us. On this great wall, Nehemiah was going there. The trumpeter followed Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah saw there was a problem, he would just go there as a leader. He would lead from the front. And the trumpeter would crowd, and everybody would rally. And then Nehemiah would say, Next one, let's go fight this battle. And the trumpeter would cry out, and everybody would follow and rally to him. We have a trumpeter blowing a trumpet in our culture, in our lives. And, and sometimes, not to get too deep or whatever, but in our hearts too. We know what's right. We do. We know what's right. We also know that there is a God-shaped hole in everyone's heart. There is. And people try to fill that with addiction to drugs, alcohol pornography, violence, stuff, 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 idols. God says the only true path is in his spirit that's going to be inside of you, and that spirit then fills that gap. And so in the police world, we have our, our little police radios, right? And we were, I was thinking about this the other day, again, not in my notes. We're in a big meeting with a bunch of supervisors, okay? There was a bunch of us who were in plain clothes as a detective sergeant, and there's lieutenants that are in their, in their little lieutenant uniforms. And <laughs> I can only say that here. <laughs> I'll be paying for that later this week, I'm sure. And there are other people around. There are commanders and all these people here. And all of a sudden, the people have little side conversations before the meeting started. There's probably about not 30 of us in this room, in this big room, kind of like this. And all of a sudden, you hear, doo -doo -doo -doo, the high-low tone. And for every cop, 
what that means immediately is that one of our brothers or sisters is going to fight for their life. They hit their emergency tone. And it was crazy what happened. And I've seen it numerous times. Want to guess what happened in that room? Everybody stopped. I mean, full-on conversations with people about things that probably mattered. Some of it didn't. They just stopped when they heard that. Everybody stopped. And we all that didn't have our radios looked at the people with radios and were just watching them. Getting ready. Because should that guy make that move to go, we were all going. As a patrol supervisor, when that happened on the street, we would all go. We would say, I got to go. My buddy's in a fight. I'll be back. And we would leave calls and we'd go and deal with it. And then it was done. We'd go back. That's that visual I want you guys to have. When Nehemiah's trumpet sounds, everybody came. And then God provided and the work was continued. What happened again, God provided and the work was continued. Our last section of scripture here is going to be verses 22 and 23, phase six, overcome. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Verse 22, at that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, each took his weapon even to the water. Nehemiah overcame the people's own discouragement by acting on God's plan, giving God the ability to do God's work. He stayed involved as he made changes when the situation demanded and kept giving God glory. He set guards first. And then he stationed people on the walls by their own homes to get the work done and get buy-in. He then incorporated, if you listen, the entire community in the region in this section here to stay in Jerusalem with their servant and guard them. He even says, I'll read it again. I said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem. When he's talking to the people, remember Pastor Doug did a brilliant job laying out in the first chapter. The people were not just the Jewish people. It was the people from the region that were compelled by God to come help. Remember that? He talked about how the walls were not completely ash. They just needed to be built more. They needed to carry out repairs and the whole region, he's asking them as the whole region, hey, come spend the night in Jerusalem. All you guys who have portion with us, spend the night in Jerusalem. That's what they did. And then Nehemiah joined them as he did everything that he was asking the people to do. Isn't that a cool thing? Think about it for a second. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? Kids, wouldn't it be great if your parents said, you can't have dessert before dinner, and then they themselves didn't have dessert before dinner? I know all the parents are like, what's he saying? Wouldn't it be great if in our homes that we, as the adults, modeled what we expect our children to do? Wouldn't it be great if our leaders that we look at and we say, you're our leaders, if they did the things that they were asking us to do? So I'm going to save all the politics, and I'll just say it for the sake of time, okay? But in your mind, think about the history about presidents of our country that have led from the front and have done the things that they're asking the people to do. That's what Nehemiah was doing. It's like I think about, I don't know, it's a cheesy movie. I think about Gladiator. I love Gladiator. I love it. It's a guy who gets down there and in the Colosseum, he rallies the troops together. Remember, they were supposed to lose that battle. He gets them all to make a shield wall and they win. He's right there with them. And if you remember, how do I get little God bumps when I think about it? You remember, 
right? Russell Crowe's walking out there, and he's flicking his sword, and they're just like, Maximus. They would follow him barefoot on glass through fire if it meant just being with that man. That's the kind of leadership that Nehemiah is displaying. And make no mistake, that's the kind of leadership that Jesus Christ leads from. When he comes back in a robe of white, flaming with his sword and his tattoo on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords, that's the guy we say we're following no matter what. Practice today. I'm not kidding. Figure out what it is you can do in this little body, in the corporate church, on missions. God's moving worldwide. We saw it. Consider this. The walls of Jerusalem. I'm going to read this little stat for you. 4,018 meters. That's about two and a half miles circumference. Average height is 12 meters, 40 feet. The average thickness is two and a half meters, eight feet. Eight feet wide, 40 feet high, two and a half miles. Because the people weren't just rebuilding, they're carrying out the repairs, we're going to see that the focus on the community in chapter 6 allowed the walls to be repaired in 52 days. Only God can do that. And only God can do what he'll do in your life if you'll just let him. If you'll just let him. I got to pray something before, and I read it on, uh, on a little meme, and I thought it was pretty cool, so I'm going to say it again. God is the author of your story. Quit trying to take the pen. Let him write your story. So today's application, after we think about the three different sections, how can the church battle an enemy already at our doors? Well, it's by overcoming ridicule. It's by outsmarting the threat of attack. And it's by overpowering discouragement. Church, think about this. The first response to a problem shouldn't be complaining, but praying. Every person, at every time, has every expectation to contribute to the solution. Nehemiah teaches us that when our focus on the enemy, we'll lose, but when we focus on God, we win. And as a people, we're no different. We're no different than Nehemiah's time. And we have troubles, we have complacency, we have apathy, we have crumbling resources, failing health, you name it. We had a chance to do a prayer of intercession for a brother. But we can't get used to how all of this just casually makes us sit back on our heels. We pray and then we act. If any of you have spent any time around me recently, my, my new bend is this idea of filtering. Okay, so I'm going to explain it to you. I'll explain it to you. Most people, I'll say, I'll exclude the church for now, but if this applies to you, let it hit your heart. Most people have two filters. Their filter starts Monday when they wake up and goes to about Friday night, maybe Saturday morning. That's their life filter. Second filter on Friday night, Saturday morning is, okay, I have my church filter. Got to get my church ideas. Who here needs help? Do we have this money? Do we have this? What, what are we doing in church? And so the problem is you have two filters in life, and so you end up becoming two different people throughout your whole week. The one week that God gave you shows two versions of whom he made you to be. So my idea of filters, I, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. We have one filter. We have one filter. Jesus Christ puts his filter over everything. Guess why? Because he's God and you're not. You have a problem with that? Take it up with God. Take it up with the Bible. I didn't write it. The one filter says that we can be who God wants us to be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and even Sunday. Kids, I'll make it easy for you. Any day that ends in a Y is a day that God wants you to be in his filter. Okay? Maybe for the adults, but that's right. 
when you think about this, I really want to challenge you guys because we're on this idea of, of community. We're on the idea of seeing victory in this. And how can you serve and contribute? Everybody at every time has every possible application to be part of a solution. All right? Jesus once looked at his disciple, remember, and they said, who's the greatest? And he looks at him and goes, but not so with you. He knew that there was to be one filter. And I challenge you guys with that. No situation, no problem, no enemy is too great to stop where God's going. God can do what God will do. We saw it last week in Scott's video. If you haven't seen that, I encourage you, reach out to Scott, watch that video. It'll change a lot for you. Like Scott said, it'll, it'll stir you. It'll change how you look at things. We are going to move into our table talk question, but I'm not going to break you guys up for the sake of time. Think about this, and as a family, you guys can talk about it later on. What's at least, at least, one tangible way to reset your weekly filter to place the bride of Christ as a church as the filter in your life? Right, so as you guys are having conversations around the big game, you consider the idea that maybe there's another filter, there's another way to look at this. So I know my son Luke would love this, so I'm going to say it right now. There's, there is just a movie quote that I love, and it's from Thor Ragnarok. When Odin's preparing Thor for the battle and he's just getting ready to, to go on and take on Hela, Thor looks, or Odin looks at Thor and said, Asgard isn't a place, it's a people. Right? We're moving into a time where we have a new building coming up. Cornerstone as a brand is not a place. It's a people, it's a community. And we will go where God says we go, amen? And wherever we go, God's spirit will be there. Jeff Abney used to say, we take this gym, we transform it into a church, into a sanctuary. He wasn't kidding. It's a big deal because anywhere you go, invite the Spirit of God in, his presence is there. Remember your history. When the cloud came down from heaven and inhabited the temple, no one could even enter, and they stood guard outside the door, and Moses got to visit face-to-face -face with the Holy One of Israel. We get to be the people of God. So I'll say that we should stand as a people of God, whether at, at Rancho Solano or Sierra Verde or at C3 or at the new blessing we have coming up. And where we are, wherever we are, when the trumpet blows, we will rally to you there. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful work you've done today because you were put on display and your people got to hear about your people. This isn't disconnected, and it's not a far-off dream. It's not a hope or a wish of what to do next. It is a battle cry to action. Lord, I pray that even now you empower the people in this room. If they don't even know you, if they don't understand why it's important to take up this mantle, Lord, I pray that you leave them unsettled and connect them with others that will be able to explain your truth, that there is one God, one Spirit, one way, one truth, one life, one Jesus. And he came to set us free. 